So here we are at the last race of the year, Abu Dhabi, and it's not often that we get to be in the same hotel, but this time I've spied down Graham Watson and we're lucky enough to be in the same hotel. So I was like, have you got a minute to have a chat about some colorful moments of your career as I would say the most well-known, most famous photographer of cycling in the history of cycling. Um, and I might be a bit wrong with some of the years here, but I think it's been about 30 years in the sport of cycling. Bit more. But bit, <laughs> bit more. Getting towards 40. 40 years, right. And that just puts it in perspective. Um, and I've been able to get to know you a little bit throughout my career. And first of all, I was got to know you from just riding along the peloton. I saw this, this guy just going along on the motorbike all the time. I was like, geez who is this guy? And, you know, I started to find out who you were and then next thing you know, we were saying hi a little bit and then, you know, things evolve over the years and um, take more and more note of where you were in the peloton. But um, one thing I was sort of speaking about was like cycling, it's a colourful sport. You know, the crowds, the different kits, the landscapes. Um, tell me about the joy of photography or photographing the world of cycling. The job of photography or the... The joy, the joy of photographing the, joy, yeah, the world of cycling. Yeah, it, it, it is a job in the sense that it's a business for me and I make money out of it, but um, joy is a better word. Um, yeah, I mean, when I started way, way back in the late 70s, um, it, it what struck me, I was already a photographer then, but I'm working in a studio in London and doing portraits of some very, very wealthy people. And I discovered cycling, you know, and I went to the Tour de France in 77, and the first thing that hit me was... Uh, how colourful the sport was that it wasn't in a stadium it was just out on the open road mm. so people like me had the same access to almost as almost anybody else and it's colourful then you sort of smelt the, the sense of adventure that you could have if you tagged along a little bit so you follow the tour for a couple of years and then you lean in towards seeing the classics like Paris-Roubaix or Tour of Flanders which I did the following year and then it, it, it's like a it's like a greedy thing I've, I've got myself into whereby you couldn't get enough races you want to go to more and more races every year and joy is the perfect description of everything I've done for the last you know 37 38 years it's a pleasure at the same time as being a, a, a wonderful way of life and a job it is a job yeah um, and like you say being on the motorbike is, is the best way of seeing a bike race you don't have to get all sweaty pedaling a bicycle you sit on the motorbike and uh, pretty, much, pretty much enjoy yourself yeah, and that's, I think that's something that I've discovered recently is that um, just with cycling myself, it initially started off as a passion and once, you know, things got a bit more serious, it changed from a passion to a job that I just really love to do um, and maybe that was sort of similar to yourself that you started off as a passion with photography and then you know it did it did turn into a job that you know that you love to do is that something you think or yeah I mean uh, as I said I was trained as a photographer in London um, from the age of about 16 until 21 or 22 when I discovered the Tour de France and um, I discovered the Tour de France because I couldn't afford to take the train into London every day to do my job as a photographer so I think my mother or maybe I bought myself a bicycle <laughs> and pedalled every day uh, three kilometres, like 20 kilometres each way, so 20k in the morning, 
20k in the afternoon and, you, and you, suddenly you meet other cyclists and you start riding to London on someone's wheel yeah. and then you've got a few hills to climb and you know not on your level but you actually start thinking Jesus this is bloody good fun <laughs> and I was still a photographer in a studio then but then I went to see the tour one year I was actually out of, out of work so I went to see the tour and I thought it's incredible I'm a photographer and I love cycling I'm no good as a cyclist I was useless and I knew it and I thought well hang on a sec this is a great way of life so, like I said, the more races I could get to, uh, very quickly you get straight away, you sell a picture straight away. I sold a picture of Eddie Merckx from that visit to the Tour de France in 1977. And because I sold the picture, uh, it instantly it was a, it was a job. Mm. So the greed was to have a good time, but also the, the greed was to make money eventually. Yeah, right. Which is very important. I mean, you wouldn't be peddling your backsides off every day if you weren't well paid or at least paid. Yeah, at least you, you have you have to have some kind of incentive, and so it's important to sell that first picture, and it's like a you just you just smell the perfume of money, mm. not 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 overnight. It's taken like twenty years to actually build the business, but um, it, it, it's it's like I keep saying, it's a way of life. It's um, what else could you do? I mean, yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't the drive in the beginning, but it was something that made it sustainable, and then um, yeah, you know, you went from there. Yeah, you got like any other job, you work your way in and. Uh, you know, try and perfect what you do. In my case, photography. In your case, riding a bike. And uh, by and large, over a period of years, you 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 get quite good at what you're doing, and people like what you do, and uh, and they pay you you know money to do the work. So it's um it's been like that for about like I say about 38 years. Well, not quite 40, but close. <laughs> well, looking at those 40 years, and I know things were much different back then. And we were speaking just before about it, and I didn't realise, but. You would spend, I would, I would think, more days on the road than I do a year. Um, I just sort of envisioned that you came back and forth from your from your your house. I wasn't actually even sure where you lived. I don't, and, know, I don't know where I live. Yeah, right. <laughs> but run me through. How many days a year do you spend on on the road? Like, what what does your typical year look like? Because I think a lot of people don't even know what 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 it takes to do what you do. Well, basically, as a photographer, as you know, I, I have to be in Adelaide, middle of January for Tour Down Under. And I have to be in Abu Dhabi in the middle of October for the Abu Dhabi tour. And by and large, everything between that is a nine-month-long uh, season of travelling. Um, actually, I've worked out most seasons we do about um, 165 race days, actually physically race days. Yeah. Plus you throw in the travelling to and from. So you, yeah, you're probably up to about 240 days a year um, wow. actually physically travelling. So home is where you find it. It's in a hotel or a... An apartment. Um, currently, we're living in New Zealand. Yeah. We moved out of London uh, beginning of last year. And I wish I'd done it years and years before because we now find ourselves like based in France when we can. Yeah. Even for a few days or, or a week in, in Provence somewhere, and it's a whole new lifestyle on top of everything else I've, I've um, been doing. But yeah, so so it's probably you know between two hundred thirty between maybe 260, 250 days a year. Wow, to put um, that in perspective, like most cyclists, if it's a big season, they're racing 100 days a year. Yeah. And maybe an uh, um, average sort of season is between 80 and 100, let's say. And to be on the road any more than that, for me, would be... <laughs> yeah, it would be... I don't know if I could do the job, really. It's it's enough, you know. And to, to put another 60 or so days on top of that, it's... yeah. Yeah, but that's what you do is a very physical thing. What I yeah. do is is much less physical. Can't call it artistic, but it's um, you know it's work, but it's not. I'm not. You know, yeah, I'm but not you... breaking into sweat every day. 
And that was something else I wanted to ask you is that even though you're downplaying that and you say, look, I'm not out there doing sweating with you guys or whatever, but you are actually out there with us. You know, it's different to say a commentator who goes from the start to the finish and they're sitting in, in a booth or whatever. That's the thing that I find amazing about what you do is you're actually out there, you're with us, you experience a lot of the same conditions we do. And one thing I was speaking to you about was, I've remembered a few times, we're in the classics early season, springtime, the worst time for us for the weather, and we're rolling along, it's pouring rain, freezing cold, but I'm actually cycling, so there's a little bit of warmth, I've got a little bit of circulation happening, and I look across, there goes Watto on the motorbike, with the camera taking a photo of me and I'm thinking you know what I've got a pretty bad here but at least I'm not sitting stagnant on a motorbike freezing my ass off how does what well, are those days like well the funny thing Mitch is I, I have the opposite feeling I look at you guys <laughs> freezing your asses off in the rain and the snow and the winds and the, in here in this country the, the sand coming into your eyes and things like that and I'm thinking what a bloody miserable way of making a living. <laughs> so we both had to actually look at each other working. Yeah. And I think I've got the better job. You know, you're, you're the ones that get dirty, wet. You know, you've crashed enough times. It's it's to me, it's not a miserable job you do, but it's uh, it's uh, it's it's not not the glamour that some people you know place with sport. It's it's uh, it's a it's a bloody hard. Yeah, you know, it's a very hard sport. It's dangerous. It's uh, it's uncomfortable. It's yeah. People think it's glamorous, but I mean I. So what I try and do as a photographer, I try and capture all that, the, glam- yeah. the so-called glamour, the accidents, the, the uncom- this discomfort, the joy of someone winning, you know, the sadness when someone loses or whatever. And so being part of it. Uh, is, is, is that something you like, like riding along there? And I'm, I'm sure you've, you can see like the emotion and I, I don't get to see you too many times at the pointy end because either one, I'm not there or two, if I am there, I'm not concentrating on a motorbike next to me. But one, when I do notice you is when you're coming past the Peloton when we're cruising and I would think that could be quite, quite nice to feel that uh, aura of the Peloton, you know, the, the arguments or just the conversation or, you know, you, you're probably one of the guys who are most close to the cyclists without being in the Peloton, I would think. Is that something you take away from... Your job, you know, you really feel part of the yeah. Peloton. I think the word is is a privilege because yeah. we are. Um, I know this year, particularly, we've had some bad accidents, and uh, there's a lot kind of black cloud hanging over the sport because of the problems with cars and motorbikes. Oh, so yeah. uh, the word is a privilege. It's, we're, people like me are very privileged to to be able to be that close to these guys all day long. You know, as you know, we're almost touching you sometimes. Yeah. When we creep past the peloton, when it's when it's packed. And when it's flying along, we you know we just try and get past as quickly as we can, and um, it's a privilege because there's no other sport. I don't think there's any other sport where the photographer, if you want to call me an observer of something, where we're that where that's actually part of the action, we're actually part of the whole sport. Yeah. You know, if you photograph uh, football or or rugby or even sailing, you're not actually. Sometimes you are in the boat with with these guys when they're sailing their big yachts around the world, but. Uh, Generally, you're you know you're you're on the sidelines. You're you know you're well away from the action. Yeah. And you you've got the big long lens taking you close in. Whereas with me, you know I'm just a few inches away from you on the motorbike sometimes, or sometimes you know twenty feet away or thirty feet away, but never never much further. So you become part of the sport. Um, you just go along with it. You know you behave yourself. Yeah. You. But this, the word privilege is is the way I I try and describe what I do because I'm very lucky to be able to to have this job whereby I'm a part of a sport I love. 
Yeah. And obviously, I make money out of it, but it's just the just the uh, the luck I've you know had um, and, and built built on you know all all these years and, and just being able to and also the cy- you know, cyclists retire. Cyclists have a you know a career of probably I don't know eight, ten, twelve years. Yeah. And then they change and they because ch- there's like a I don't know about five hundred cyclists racing uh, in a, in a season. You don't notice them all coming and going. But there's always new, literally new yeah. blood coming in, and you're, you find yourself, um, you know, I mean, you think of all the people I've photographed down the years, like from Bernardino and Greg LeMond, uh, right the way through now to uh, Cancellara just retired, you know. I mean, it's incredible when I think, when I have the time to think how many cycling careers I've seen. Yeah. Right the way through their, these guys' careers, you know, so it's, it's, it's a privilege. Oh, for yeah, sure. And yeah. like, just, I want to go on to talking about that too, but just before we move off the Peloton and on the road, one thing, there's two questions I want to ask you about that is, one, do you have your own motorbike driver? Um, Rider? I have two preferred drivers, depending on which part of the world we're in. Okay. And they, one that, for one of them it's a full-time job. He also drives TV in Belgium. So I sort of take him to most of the major races now. And I have an English guy who does the classics in Northern Europe and Paris-Nice, and sometimes does the tour. But I, I, you know, so in other words, I keep it to the bare minimum just so that they get an awful lot out of it. They get paid. They get to travel as well. Yeah. But I don't ruin their lives by making them do nine months on the road with me. They 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 can come and go and you know see their families now and again. Because that's a trust thing. And I was going to ask you: Have you actually gone down on the motorbike before crash? Because I don't know if everyone listening out there knows. Graham actually sits on the back of a, a motorbike where another guy drives it around. And are you guys in communication with radios, or you just talk over the shoulder? Just, I just talk over the shoulder, and you know, we, by and large, I know my two, two or three drivers very, very well. They know what I want. They, we don't even sometimes we don't even talk at all. You know, you know, the driver will know where I want to be. Um, if you see someone from Orica, Green Edge, Orica Bike Exchange, they'll always be Green Edge to me. Yeah, it's me too. <laughs> um, yeah. He knows. You know, if he sees you pedaling along, he'll he'll just pull take, up. Yeah, he'll just pull up. And uh, you know, I do that with all the other guys. And he knows the driver knows exactly where I want to be. Um, yeah, we, you know, you do, you do have the occasional spill. Yeah, right. Um, not many, thank goodness. Um, I've been very, very lucky. Yeah. Touch wood. Yeah. Um, yeah, you do. You, you know, you, it's, it's two wheels like a bicycle, but obviously motorbikes are much more stable. Mm. Um, but sometimes you get into trouble. Um, <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe I wouldn't want. to Maybe just like once every two years there'll be a spill. Yeah, right. But you just like a minor one. Nothing yeah. much. You might just spin off in the sand or uh, on the on the mud of Paru Bay or you yeah. know the worst one is when you when you you know miss out on a bend going down an Alpine pass. Oh but, yeah. But, but that that's bad driving. Yeah. But by and large, you've had accidents. It's just purely bad luck. Yeah. You know, you just some oil on the road or diesel spill or yeah. a bit like you guys really. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Um, no, I've been really lucky. Yeah. I think I've been really really lucky. So. <laughs> is that something now I was thinking you would be a fantastic director sportif I would think now because you more or less have to do what the directors do for us You would, I would think that you would have to study the parkour and think okay it's going to go down on this area here I want to make sure I'm there um, okay some races are the same every year so you know what it's going to be like but when it comes to a tour and do you have a look at say the Tour de France and you think okay um, the mountain before the final mountain that's going to be an interesting climb because I think it might split there and there's going to be some good chances to get some photos there is that how you approach the stages? Yeah, yeah um, by and large all the races uh, yeah, the one day classics the three week tours 
over the years I've been doing it, of course, you know, I probably I probably know all the roads they use. Yeah. It's just occasionally, especially in the Giro, and sometimes the Vuelta, they find this new road somewhere. Yeah, of course. Which you've never yeah. seen in your life, and you and but you always remember it. So in other words, every every two or three years, you're going back over the same road you saw three years ago, and you remember. You think, yeah, that's where they're gonna. That's where there's this, you know, the road kicks up. Yeah. You know, One percent steeper. That's where I've got to be. Um, but it doesn't always work out. I mean, yeah. I'm sure like a, sometimes I see team managers driving their car and you know they've had a team plan in the morning, they're going to do this, this and this. But they, it changes 20 times a day. Mm. Their, their plan changes 20 times a day and a good DS, you know, adapts to whatever's happening in the race. And so the photographer is similar in that thing, oh shit, that didn't work out, that scenery picture just didn't work out at all. And so you're constantly changing your plans to try and recover something from the mm. day. Yeah, you, you might think I could be a good team manager. I doubt it very much. <laughs> you uh, could be a good logistics manager. We, I could, I could be team, a logistics yeah. man. I could be some sort of, uh, say, like you know, Julian Dean goes, yeah. goes ahead of the race and he says, look, the road's really narrow here, yeah. or the sprint's going to be like this, or do this and do that. I know Julian, although he was a sprinter, he actually goes ahead and gives advice to the climbers as well. He says, yeah, yeah. the road's going like this. So in that sense, I could be quite useful in, in another life. Yeah, I would but think I mean, so. Uh, but no, I mean, it's uh, the more I see of cycling, What's, what's incredible is how much cycling I see and the less I understand. It shouldn't be that. It should be the more I see, the more I understand. But it's the opposite. The more I see, the less I understand. Because you can't see inside their heads. Yeah. When you see someone, even yesterday on that last climb, you know, I couldn't figure you know, what Nibley was doing with Contador. And, you know, in the hindsight, when you get the result, you think, ah, that's what they were doing. Yeah. But at the time, I can't, I can't look inside their heads figure out why the hell don't they chase these guys in front you know they're just looking at each other flying, fooling around it's, do not you, the, it's not the Tour de France they, they could just go for it do you, at the time like that are you in the lens looking for the best shot or do you actually take a moment to step away and go wow this is a race happening here oh is Contador going to go oh are you a bit like a fan at that point or are you purely looking down the lens for a good shot um, I'm, I'm not a fan but you actually when you look through the lens you close yourself off to everything else you close one eye literally and you've got your right eye normally looking through the camera lens. At that point, you lose touch with everything else yeah. going on. So what I like to do is actually just put the camera away from my eye and look with both eyes and see the bigger picture, literally see what's going on, see what's coming up, you know, another climb coming or whatever. And you actually see a lot more going on when you don't have a camera in, in your face. Yeah. Because, you know, you've got two eyes and you actually take the whole the whole story in. Mm. Once you take a picture, you're um, if you look at the TV cameraman filming... That's all he sees is through through this eyepiece, and you, you miss you miss a lot. And it's quite frustrating for me watching the race sometimes, and I know they're filming a moment they think is important, but you know the race yourself, and you're like, pan back or look at this or look at that because you know, like you just said, you get these guys are narrow visioned, and they're missing what's happening in the race, and because yeah, I guess that yeah. could happen. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, not there's a huge fan inside me, I'm sure, but I mean. Uh, when you've got a camera in your hand or cameras, it's work. Yep. It's like me giving you a bicycle. It's probably, it should be work. But I mean, yeah, you're, you're, you're also a fan of what you do. Now, I guess yeah. I have to admit now, I've never really thought of it, but there are moments in the race, for me even, where you're either your job's done or you know you're not going to be able to follow. And to be able to just observe sometimes those attacks, um, maybe at the bottom of the hill yesterday, I know I was never going to get up the climb. And you can you're there just at the beginning of the climb, and you're watching the the climbers do their thing. And I guess, in a funny way, I'm sort of a fan too. You're watching, wow, oh, look, there goes Contador, oh, wow, you know, or 
you know, there goes our guy, Carlos. You know, is he yeah. going to be able to do it? And you're, without even subconsciously, you you are a fan of cycling. You're watching it too. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Whether you realise it or not at that moment. That's, um, good. That's the way it should be. I guess so, yeah. The man who loves his job is a happy man. <laughs> so, well, run me through what is a typical day for you? So, we're on tour here, and my typical day would be get up, have breakfast, you know, we prepare for the race, we head off to the race do our race, come back, get our treatment and, you know, the, the day is done. But that's a very quick version of it. Um, <laughs> yeah, compressed version. I don't know. Like, is is your day start like that? Do you get up in the morning and, you know, run me through. What what, a, what does a typical day involve? Well, let's let's ignore what we've got here. We're in a, we're in a luxury six-star Yeah, this is, this is an exception. Um, first of all, I should say the worst... Is it six-star here? Well, I, I like to say it's six-star. Yeah, yeah it is, it's pretty good. <laughs> and we're totally spoiled. Yeah. And as you say, we're really in the same hotel as the teams. Yeah. And, you know, I'd be honest and say the worst thing for me is when I'm travelling around Europe and we're in some little three-star, two-star, one-star hotel in France <laughs> and there's a cycling team staying there because the service drops, you know, and there's no hotel in Europe that can really cope with having a, you know, 20, 20, a 20 group cycling team to cope with, you know, the, the the, the service in the restaurant just falls away. You can't get anything done. You can't get laundry done. You know, it's, no. it's, so the worst place to be in Europe is is with, is with a cycling team, from yeah. my point of view. And also, oh. yeah, the, the the food just dries up. Um, I'm always laughing when we're yeah. in a hotel and someone's actually there on holidays. Yeah. I think holiday. you poor <laughs> bastards. You've scored the worst possible yeah, weekend because yeah. now you've got a pig cycling team here yeah. eating all the food, you know. And the, and the waiters and waitresses, yeah. they can't cope. I yeah. mean, and they're naturally, <laughs> they look after the cycling team. But, um, but no, what is that? How's it, Dave? So, yeah. you know, uh, I'll, I'll try and brush away last night's hangover yeah, right. a little bit. Because um, we do, one of the reasons why you work, believe it or not, is to actually eat well and drink well and have a bit of fun with your mates. Yeah, nice. So, um, so you, br- you brush that away, you have breakfast, you... It's, it's very basic uh, you just drive off on your motorbike or in, in a car um, to the start um, you jump on a motorbike you just go with the race for six hours or four hours or three hours and do you like before the race you have a plan like okay I'm, I'm at the start of the race I want to get some pre-race photos or you're, you've already every day is the same plan or you make a different plan depending on the stage yeah, just, the basic plan is is to look at the road book they give you Yeah, and just look at it I mean, most of the time I know where I'm going because you know, I'm that old I've been literally down the same road so many times before there's not, not many surprises left but you should still look at the road book and they give these little profile maps as well which you yeah. guys carry and you start having a plan where, you know, what's going to happen today is it going to be a scenery shot is it going to be the money shot when someone attacks is it going to be you know, a sprint finish is Cavendish going to you know, come across the line with his arms in the air and you have all these little plans um, you know, provisioning in your head as, depending how literally how it pans out and I'll just be doing, you know, clicking away at stuff all day long. And there's a huge element of work that follows a, a, a day on, on a motorbike. You've got, um, you've got about 500 images or so in your cameras to, to uh, edit. And that's a three hour, like a, every, every day is probably like a three hour working, working um, uh, spell after the race. Yeah, right. So your, your, your day, whether it's been six hours on the motorbike, it, it gets extended by three hours in, in the in the press room or if you're lucky in a hotel room where you can work quietly um, that's really what I do so it's, uh, it sounds very basic and it, it, it's probably not basic but it sounds basic you just get on with it and edit your pictures after the race and rush to the restaurant before it closes 
and, and, I f- and then start the whole thing again next day. And you probably make it sound so basic there because you've worked out a, a, a system and I can imagine someone coming new to it would be just snapping away and then make a hell of a lot more work for themselves after the race because they're like, okay, I've got 700 pitches now and I need to bring it down. Whereas I can imagine you now, you're not snapping away unless you know that's going to be a shot that you want to keep, more or less. Yeah. Um, and you, you reduce that work after after the stage because of that experience over the years. Is that how it's sort of... That's, you've, 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 you've summed it up, especially now in the internet age where before, you know, we used to process film and, you know, the clients would get their pictures two weeks later and now they want them within an hour of the finish. So the worst thing you can do is take too many pictures of, 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 the, of the race, of the stage and have all that all those images to edit you, you you just make it work for yourself so you take mm. you take less pictures because with experience you know what you have to take you know, some days you don't waste pictures at all you you, you know you've got like a three hour workload coming um, and the less pi- the less pictures you take gives you the advantage because mm. you can just work through them that much quicker um, yeah you're right people come in you know click away and they've got a thousand images in their cameras and then they kind of collapse in the press room because they can't cope with the, with, the, with the volume of images they've got to work through. Yeah. My, my driver here, for example, is a Belgian guy. And back in the day, he was also a professional cyclist. And he never lets me relax. He's, if there was ever like a two-minute gap when there's nothing going on, he'll say, he'll nudge me and say, Grant, you know, there's, there's, there's Mitch Docker up there. Or there's, <laughs> and I say, sir, his name is Serge. And Serge, I'm not taking any more pictures because every picture I take is two minutes editing. Yeah. And I said, every time you do that, times 10, it's 20 minutes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 20 images is... I said, you know, I want to eat sometimes. And, and literally, you, you just take less images to give yourself a chance to actually work quickly in the evening. And make the images that you take... Count. ...much better. Yeah, yeah count, yeah. exactly. Yeah. And you've got more time yeah. to do them rather than just like, okay, I've just got to pump through these images. And ultimately, each image you make worthwhile. Yeah. I can understand yeah. that. Yeah, sometimes... Uh, what's the word... Uh, Sometimes less is more. You take you take less pictures, you 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 take better pictures. If you yeah. start taking loads and loads of pictures, and you know you you you'll go mad, stir fry. <laughs> well, and talking about rides, do you have a favourite rider over the years that you always you know used to find yourself snapping off more often than not? Yeah, I, th- I think each if I can use the word generation, I mean my old favourite was always Sean Kelly. Yeah, uh, Phil Anson came close. Uh, guys like him came close, but Kelly, Kelly had something. He had something in his eyes. These, 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 he, he didn't trust anybody, and his eyes were always like suspicious, which to a photographer makes them very attractive. Yeah. And though, in the days when you didn't have glasses on, you know, you you could actually see the guy. And the same with Eno a little bit. Um, in more modern times, it's been Miguel and Yeah, right. You know, in the nineties, uh, he was just like you know six foot three, the real kind of statuesque person. Um, I love obviously photographing Lance Armstrong because he had so much energy, and and again the the eyes were yeah I was about to say I always remember killer, something killer with his, eyes. his eyes always yeah, yeah, yeah. had his glasses on his helmet and he was he would take off his glasses and you know um, the eyes just you know stared right through you yeah quite cold, quite cold blooded yeah it was um, yeah I've I've enjoyed there's so many sites I've enjoyed photographing and it's not always the champions it's often the the ones that do the hard work and you know uh, either not physically as strong as the champions or their their role in the team is different but um, it's not just the champions there's lots of people who have just uh, some people amuse me yeah they're mm. just very funny people um, but uh, probably the most recent one I like is, I mean I, I've always enjoyed Cancellara mm. uh, again he's a colossal physically yeah. he's a colossal guy he's much bigger than most cyclists uh, Tom Bowen as well you know he's, he's just 
head, literally head and shoulders above everybody else. Yeah. Um, there's just so many cycles, but each 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 each, each, each area, if you like, there's there's one. Yeah. You know, and um, yeah, that's been good. Yeah, nice. Um, have you found? I don't know whether this would be true, but at recent times, you know, you were speaking a little bit about the before where you had film and you know what I was reading a little bit about you was it was about reputation with race organisers you you came in the peloton and they had trust in you and things rolled from there but have you found that in more recent times with I wouldn't say so much with iPhones but the accessibility of digital photography has it become much harder to market your your job your business you know like are there a lot more people out there taking snaps as amateurs and you know getting away with it per se uh, that's probably the way of describing it is that uh, in the old days when there was film yeah you know you had the whole you had the whole business to yourself yeah um, a client would pay you money and they needed your pictures they needed, literally physically needed your film yeah sent to them and they didn't bother going anywhere else for the pictures they trusted you obviously I was quite good at what I did and but you had to physically supply them with a film but at the same time as that it meant they never went anywhere else because whereas these days you go on you literally log on to a computer log onto the internet and you've got a choice of uh you know 500 photographers pictures of the tour de france every day mm. so there's that you have to know as your your exclusivity is gone and you're having to work that much harder to stay ahead of what what you call amateurs i think i think now there's no real real definition anymore it's just no. basically uh a free for all, but but the professionals are still way ahead of everybody else because they know what to do and they've got the they've got the clients and they've got the access. But yeah, you have to work that much harder to to keep ahead of the rest of them. Take a different angle now. And yeah, there's well the problem with with the way I work is I've got so many clients that I can't really do anything different. I have to provide those clients with what they want. Yeah. So if Green Edge want ten pictures tonight, yeah, they'll get ten pictures. They won't be artistic. They'll be you know, yeah. one of each rider on the team in, in, in a stage of the tour or the Giro or the Vuelta. There's not much room to play around and be artistic because you've got the clients expecting, you know, basic images from, from you. Um, but yeah, the internet's also opened up, you know, you, you can market yourself that much better. Mm. I mean, it has become over overkill now because everybody is, everybody has a website, everybody has, um, you know, uh, the, the ways to send pictures to their clients or to potential clients. Uh, it keeps you on your toes. It's it's quite a challenge. So it has been, yeah. I guess <coughs> beneficial and negative in in both ways. Um, in that in that respect. Now, what else did I want to ask you about here? There's before we get into stuff. I want to talk about some of your photos. I want to get your um, opi- uh, just some opinions on those photos about what that moment was like. But just before we go, there was. Have you ever had? Because one thing I find in Belgium when we're racing there, I don't know whether this is true or not. But there's certain moments where the photographers are allowed on the course and conveniently some riders seem to attack at those moments because, you know, there's quite a lot of motorbikes in front of them. Mm-hmm. Have you um, have you got any requests that like that? You know, like, hey, Graham, uh, maybe it's be good if you take a photo of me around the um, <laughs> this this area here, you know? Is that, do you find that that's sort of a thing um, where some riders are putting requests out? I want to, whether it's, for the racing side of things, or hey, um, be great if you could get a photo of me going up the choir once today. You know, do you yeah. ever get requests from riders? No, no. It's only just no. from teams. 
Um, well, teams just trust you to do the job. Yeah. You know, and if the Coromont's in the race today, obviously I'm going to stand there because it's the Coromont. And the cyclists, you know, they're not they're not really going there to have their pictures taken. Yeah. Yeah, because they're just basically trying to get up the hill in the same speed as everybody else is getting up the hill. And if a photographer's happened to be there, because he should be there, <laughs> you know, you get a picture taken. But there are times, and not so much now, but in the old days when, I mean, these days you probably notice we're, we're, we're regulated. We There's only so many motorbikes allowed yeah. in the race. We have rules that we have to live by, or yeah, we, get, right. we get suspended for a day's racing. Really? By the UCI, yeah. You could, hmm. All this goes on, so you've got to behave properly these days. And I say these days in the last 10 years. Yeah. But in the old days, like... Um, it was a bit free-for-all, wasn't it? Was it was a free-for-all, and you could... Uh, benefit you know you could benefit a top cyclist by being in the right place at the right time just as he attacks you just happen to be three meters in front yeah. of him and the most famous place was the Poggio in Milan San Remo yeah you know, right you, you, you literally um, I, I won't name names but no. you'd have cyclists come up to you at the start of the morning saying hey hey Graham how are you you know, and, you know is everything good you know, how's, how's your wife and I'm thinking well, what do you want and what they were saying was they wanted you just to be have that contact with you yeah and at the end of the day on the podio uh, when you're just just in front of the there's not a peloton but yeah. when you're just in front of these guys and if they could just attack and get within a meter of the back of that motorbike yeah before your drivers reacted in time to get out of the way they've got an advantage yeah they're going to get paced away from the rest of the cyclists and then you can multiply that by you know eight photographers on eight motorbikes um and you've got 10 cyclists all trying literally they were competing to to jump into the slipstream of a motorbike yeah. or a TV motorbike yep. and, and you're gone, you've won the race. Yeah, and that's all it takes because everyone's on the yeah. fine edge there. Yeah, and it happens, it does happen still. You, you, you see it in Paris Bay uh, because the speed's so high. Yeah. Uh, without, a, without the motorbike being, if there's no motorbikes at all, you know, the cyclists would be left with their own devices. They'd, yeah. ne they'd never be able to get away. But sometimes with a motorbike, you've got to, it's, like, it's probably like two seconds advantage. But it's something. Yeah, it, it is. It's just enough for them to open up a gap. And then but, but, the gap's created. Yeah. The gap's created. And, but also you do see the more negative things whereby, um, you wouldn't know this, when we, when we come from the back of a peloton, when the race is breaking up and there's escape just going away and, and suddenly there's all these motorbikes have come across from behind because the race officials said, yeah, go in front, go ahead. And the peloton gets pulled across. And suddenly you've, you're closing the gap, yeah. which is you know, miserable to see because yeah. it's, it's, sport, it's sport the tactics. But these days we're really regulated, you know. We, yeah. Uh, um, even if you tried hard to to be, um, you know, helping one cyclist over another, it's almost impossible. Yeah. Yeah. You 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 will get suspended for a day, and it's not worth it, you know. Um, <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, That's. I I wanted to put that question out there. I wasn't sure if you were going to answer it fully, but it, it is really interesting to hear that because, you know, we're always. When it's working for you, you don't notice you're getting towed by the motorbike. But as soon as it's not for you... Yeah, when you you're know, seeing someone else do yeah, it. Yeah, you're complaining yeah. and you know the motorbike's always too close, whether it's 100 metres away or whatever. But as yeah. soon as it's up to you, you're like, you know what? I'm not even noticing that motorbike one metre in front of me. So Exactly. And it, <laughs> what goes around comes around. Yet the other day I saw the TV motorbike in front of us and I was in the peloton. We had a guy on a break and I thought the motorbike was too close, but... I wasn't going to say anything because I was like, you know what? There's probably a TV motorbike in front of the breakaway, and it's mm. yeah. everyone's yeah. getting the same advantage or disadvantage, whatever you want to call it. Um, it, it. It is what it is. But um, yeah, no, you're right. There's there's so many uh, things that do go on. All right, so now let's. I've got I've got a few photos here. Okay. Um, these are some of the favourite ones. Is there a South African in you? 
You've got, like, you've got like a, a what would they call it? Like a yuppie. You're what? Australian, but there's like a, a twang. Is there? Yeah. In my in my accent. Yeah. All oh, right. Yeah. I didn't even notice. Yeah. No, I'm I'm full Oz. Uh huh. All right. Right. So I haven't got the best ones. So I've taken your screenshots here. Okay. But you're gonna have to. I'm gonna put these up on the website after, so people can okay. can know exactly the photos we're talking about. Yeah. Um, tell me about this photo. This photo's two guys riding along. Yeah. Another guy piggybacking. Mm-hmm. I don't know who the two riders are. Who are the two riders here? The guy. The guy piggybacking is uh, Stefano Giuliani. Yeah. Who's uh, he's not here in the race, but he is. Um, he is a team manager of one of those slightly small, not Bardiani, but uh, an Italian team. I can't remember the team, but he was a nutcase. <laughs> and the guy carrying him is Mario Shirea, right. who has, who's actually in the Abu Dhabi tour as team manager of Lamprey. Oh, right. So okay. The, yeah, if you say that to him, he'll laugh. And he was Cipollini's big lead-out man oh, back right. in the day. So what's happened is that it's one of the last days of the tour of Spain. I can tell that because of the pig farm or chicken oh, farm right. in the background. Okay. They're very Spanish. And uh, they're fooling around. Yeah, someone else has obviously got his bike and Giuliani's just jumped on the back of Surea. He probably weighs 55 kilos, so it's nothing. But uh, that's what they're doing, they're just having fun. It's a brilliant fun. It's a, it's a last last day game, you know, which we don't see enough of now. But no, so, we don't. And that's, that is something that I've noticed here, which has been a really fun thing here. It's the last race of the year and I've noticed the peloton is just a bit more relaxed and feels like so long ago that I've even talked to other Talk, spoken to other riders from other teams it's, and like you said you don't see it too often anymore well you're, 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 you're playing to a game plan every day yeah whereas these guys just did what they wanted yeah you know, exactly and they, obviously they still race but you know they had their moments yeah yeah. and what's the next photo I've got here I've got I put a classic Roubaix wet Roubaix one in yeah um, tell us about this one um, that's Andre Chamil I think it's the 2001 Paris-Roubaix which I believe was won by Surveys Carnarvon. Yep. Might be 2000, I think it was 2001. And the whole cobbles just covered in puddles and puddles of water. Nobody could ride the bicycles. And uh, photographer's dream. Again, don't, don't see it very often these days. You know, we don't get wet weather in April anymore. No. The, cl- the climate changes, you know, fix that. But, um, yeah, we, we, photographers live for days like this. You know, the, the, the poor guys riding their bikes, they can't ride them. They're walking, running slipping around in their cleats but uh, it's part of the sport yeah so uh, may it always be so I've always said I would want to do a Roubaix like this but every time it starts looking like it's going to be a wet one and after being on the cobbles for the classics already and being on some wet cobbles I think yeah I don't know if I'd want to do that it just the photos make it look glamorous in a funny way yeah but I, I know that moment that these guys are in in this photo and they are not loving that. They're not loving life right there. No, no. Well, he, this guy was probably trying to win the race. Yeah. Um, which he has he has won the race before. But I'd imagine by the time you get to Paris Roubaix, you've done, if you work backwards, you've done, uh, you know, Gent Weatherwood and Tour Flanders. You've done these smaller races now, which are becoming big races like the E3. Yeah. And Doors, Door of London. And they've all got their cobblestone sections. And I'd imagine after one race, or two races you've you've had enough of the cobbles yeah but then you get to Paris-Roubaix and the worst ones of all you know um, and what were you, what was a day like this for you like because I was asking before have you gone down or whatever I can imagine still on the motorbikes it's pretty dangerous yeah this 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 one here particularly where you, you can't see the road it's under puddles of water 
and you do go down. I mean, a motorbike is a is a very heavy thing, and once it's going, it's, it goes. You, yeah. can't, you can't save it. And when you can't see, when your driver can't even see where the cobbles are or where the road is, then you you know it's. These days, if that happened, we we would be excluded from that section of the race. You think? Yeah. No, I know. I know for sure. Oh, right. But there was ever contingency contingency plan uh, when it's that bad, and literally you'd, you'd get uh, diverted away. But in, but in these days, it was just go for oh, it. Just yeah. good luck. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. yeah. All right. What's the next one here? Oh, I love these photos. A photo Maybe. of Alan Alan Davis after he won Tour Down Under. But what I loved about it was. Yeah, it was just like I was talking to you before. I love these photos, the colours and the the you know, the, like we said, the joy of it. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. it's an amazing sort of photo there. He's obviously happy and the colour of that that ochre jersey. Yeah, yeah. The, what we did here, um, there's a local photographer in Adelaide, whose name's Sarah Reed, who works for the Advertise newspaper that sponsors the race. And every year, whoever wins the race, she has to do a special shot. So this was body uh, crowd surfing. Hmm. Now, not many slighters would, would do that. I mean, I mean, Alves, as you know, he's a bit of a laugh. He's, he's game for a good old, you know, some good fun. And he was quite happy to have the crowd just pass him around above their heads. Yeah. He's also a little guy, so yeah. they could do it. But, uh, you know, not many slighters would actually just allow that to happen. It's, uh, it's not dangerous, but yeah. you know, they're, not, you know, they're not comfortable having that close contact with people like that. But here he was being passed over his heads through the crowd, so and he, lo- he loved it. Yeah. yeah. That was a great shot. Yeah. Uh, this is the one of Chippo. Uh, I had to put a Chippo photo in because he's he's one of my my favourite cyclists back in the day, um, and he was always flamboyant clothing and you know I I could imagine he would have been a great guy to f- photograph. And you got this day of him smoking a cigarette as yeah. we we're rolling along. What, yeah, tell me about this. Um, well, married Chippo, was a, you know a, a, a playboy. He loved it. <laughs> And uh, I, I don't know where it came from, but he suddenly had this cigarette. I think he probably pinched off a, a motorbike driver you know, just to have a puff. And also just to get his picture taken. Yeah. He was a showman. He was a fantastic showman. I mean, he, he was around for, it seemed like, about 12, 15 years. He just wouldn't go away. He just, <laughs> he just loved it so much. Made millions out of it. Won, you know, dozens and dozens of races. But he just clearly loved what he did. And you still see him now. He turns up at a race. As fit as anything, you know, he just rides his bike. Sometimes he comes in the peloton. I've heard this. So he just yeah. comes into the peloton in the middle of the race. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you know, if we're around his place, I think he lives in Luca in, in Tuscany, and he'd slip into the race, and the race officials say, "Oh, Mario, just don't cause any trouble." <laughs> but he he'd pedal along for an hour with the, with the, with the peloton quite happily, and then just then, then, then just pull off. So he's still a showman. <laughs> I mean, he's uh, you know, as a photographer, you 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 remember him, you know, in the same sense you'd remember. You know, the seven years of Lance Armstrong winning or the five years of Miguel Indurain winning his tours. He, he left a, a mark. In the yeah, He li- literally did, yeah. 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 I love this photo. This is of um, Sean Yates. And this is something that, I just as you were saying before, it's Roubaix, is it? Yep. And dry one. A dry pay. Dry Roubaix. But like what you said before, the eyes. And I can see the determination in his photos. Apart from it, just I love that era too. Just the determination on his face, I, I could relate to that. I was like, oh, I know where he's at there. It's sort of, you know, mid-Roubaix. Uh, yeah, tell me about that photo. Um, yeah, I mean, in those back in those days, he's riding for most rowers, so that was my only team I worked for back in the 1990s. And Sean, I've known since he was a junior, um, racing in southern England. 
So I kind of followed his, followed his career quite a bit. And he was a big guy who had an awful lot more strength than he realised. Um, but he always wanted to help other people win. So one of the days when he really did go for himself was Paris-Roubaix. It wasn't Tour Flanders or anything else, it was Paris-Roubaix. And he would stop working for others and he would do it for himself. And he, you know, he loved it. And he's very, he's, he's quite a tall guy. He's very athletical looking, he photographs very well. And as you would imagine in Paris-Roubaix, you know, your eyes are absolutely focused on the you know, two metres in front of you all the time just so, to make sure you'd hit the right, the right path. And it's mm. worked out pretty well. You know, it's a good old-fashioned cycling picture. Yeah. Um, it is, you know, cornering, knee out, but there was something about that photo that sort of spoke to me more than, you know, another one. It's just... I think to me, he's, 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 he's on the very limit of what you can do on a bicycle, yeah. on a cobblestone. He's, he's coming into a, um, a corner at the Carrefour de Lab, yeah. which is the most important part of Paris Bay. But he's literally on the limit. I mean, he could he could go down any second. He's he's uh, he's just about balancing to keep his bicycle upright and and keep the speed going through the corner. Mm. And that's what the eyes show. The eyes show you know what is what's going through his mind. Yeah, you totally. Know. Yeah, and again, the spectators in the background help as well. I mean, it means there's something going on. Yeah, and yeah. they're looking at the next coming. So he's yeah. he's off. You know, he's off the front of that group or yeah, whatever he is there. Yeah. I put this one in and. Just because this was the era that I sort of started watching a lot of cycling, and I was a big yarn fan, um, <laughs> and I thought that you would have had a lot of fun photographing these two, the battle through the years, yeah. Yarn and well, Ulrich and Armstrong. Yeah, yeah. It's one, it was one of the classic duels of of the. Uh, it's all it went pear shaped, obviously, but at, at the time when you know you didn't know what was going on, you just photographically and sporting, you just saw these guys just competing all the time and they loved it mm. and they ne- yeah, the, neither of them gave way to the other one I mean obviously Lance got, got the better of Vienna most of the time but Vienna never stopped challenging Lance as much as he could you know it was great and, yeah. I'm, and I'm pretty sure Vienna really enjoyed in hindsight enjoyed the rivalry yeah. even though he, he lost out most of the time I mean it's uh, two very physical people especially Vienna it's just you know um, so well built muscular yeah. and everything else and the body language you know, both of them there it's uh, it's amazing. I think that's the two thousand and is that the two thousand one Tour de France? I think it is. Yeah. Yeah, it might be. Yeah, German champ. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, yeah, they they spent the whole of that Tour de France just battling out with each other. Mem- memorable stuff. Yeah. Slightly tarnished, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. <laughs> no. Uh, this is a. I don't know if this is from there, but I assume this is when Fignon lost the the tour on the last day of the Tour de France. Yep. And this is an amazing photo because. You were right there at that moment. Is this this is just moments after you realised, yeah. or? Um, yeah, it wasn't luck. I mean, where they did the time trial in Paris in 1989, and um, he he he'd lost. But most people, uh, they, they had to sort of see that picture in context with one of Greg LeMond, mm. who's just realised he's won. Yeah. And just like three feet away, this guy is crying his eyes out on the floor. He's sitting on the cobblestones of the Champs Elysees. Just got his head head in his hands. He can't believe he's lost, and just like three feet away is Greg LeMond. You know, sudden, suddenly realizing he's won it. So you put the two pictures together, and that's the story of that of that probably what for me was probably the greatest Tour de France I've ever seen. Because mm. because the, the, you know, it's like eight seconds between them at the end, and, and a time trial to finish it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and a time trial, and and also you know it's the first time um, a professional cyclist used the these aero bars yeah. and things like this. And he didn't, Fignon didn't bother. He had these old-fashioned, 
what would you call them that the half yeah um, uh, the the, half. they call them like bullhorns <laughs> yeah. or something yeah yeah he didn't, he didn't and he didn't have a helmet whereas mm. Le Monde had a hard shell helmet and a yeah, the bars and Started the era, yeah, didn't yeah. it? It literally yeah. was, yeah. So it's a very, uh, as well as a spectacular moment and a nostalgic moment, it's also a very um, strategic moment when cycling you know, came into the modern age. Mm. <coughs> oh, and that's, that's all the photos we got here. <coughs> um, okay. Well, I won't, um, we've both, both get, got to get ready for the day ahead. Um, but thanks for yeah, sharing the time with me this morning. It's, I could just keep chatting all day, actually, you know, like. <laughs> We've only just sort of touched on it, but yeah. um, I'm glad I got a chance to speak to you today, uh, Graham. Okay. Pleasure. And um, pleasure. Uh, hopefully, we can check in another time and talk about some uh, yeah. some amazing photos of me uh, coming into the velodrome of Roubaix okay. one time. I look forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Good. Thanks a lot, Thanks, Graham. Mitch. Thank you.